Hello and welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Baute Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. As you probably know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. The following recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to another edition of the i3 Insights podcast. This is Daniel Grioli, editor of MarketFox. And today we have with us Raymond Williams from Parametric. She is a researcher of all things implementation, tax, and basically how to do things better. So it's a great chat we've got lined up for you. We're going to consider some of the things that uh, institutional investors do well, some of the things they do poorly, some of the reasons why they keep doing things poorly. And with that, I'll introduce Raywin. Raywin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. I'm looking forward to telling people about the stuff that people think are very boring, but is actually very interesting. Well, I I hope you're right, because uh, (laughs) when we were planning this podcast, I was thinking, Talking about tax for an hour is going to be really tough. So hopefully we've come up with a good mix of, uh, of questions and topics that will keep it interesting. But uh, we normally start off a podcast asking our guests how they got to be where they are today, how they got into the investment business. So Raywin, what's your story? Yeah, I do have an unusual pathway into where I am now. I started life as a tax lawyer and I practiced in the superannuation and investment management industry. And one of the things I caught on about very quickly was the fact that Australian super funds have this almost unique quirk in the world where they're actually taxed on their investment earnings. So um, I started uh, getting interested in the fact that the industry was measure, was managing the pre-tax outcomes, whereas we should be after-tax focused and going, well, does that difference really matter? So combine, I really combined that tax expertise that I had with um, some investment expertise I had, not that uh, I would call myself an investment professional, but I was really looking at the intersection of those two things and uh, testing whether we should care about this difference between pre-tax and post-tax outcomes. And the more I researched it, the more I realised that it did make a difference. And I am the sort of person, perhaps because of my red hair, that gets a bit fired up when, I, when I'm onto something. And um, it, it really launched me down this new path where I started educating the super fund industry more and more about being tax aware. That's since broadened to all kinds of implementation frictions that affect investment portfolios and led me eventually to hook up with um, the firm that I work for now, Parametric, who has a real pedigree in uh, managing taxes and overall implementation efficiency in portfolios in the US. Okay, that's, uh, that's good. So when you started out uh, looking into tax and super and, as you say, noticing that uh, super funds get taxed on their income but they don't seem to factor that into the way they invest, was anybody else looking at this? Interestingly, 
there was there was the odd thread about people wondering whether they should care about it, and it it started to get some attention around the mid two thousands, sort of up to two thousand six seven. People just started to bring it into the conversation ask the, and ask the questions. They didn't really have the answers, but they were starting to ask the question. Of course, at that time, it was a big bull market. There'd been a long rally, certainly in Australian shares. And so people were starting to do some quick back-of-the-envelope uh, calculations on the amount of tax that was being paid on all these equity gains. So it was starting to happen. And then, of course, we all know what happened late 2007, 2008, the GFC hit, and then the whole thing went away and there were other things to focus on, shall we say. Well, everybody had so many losses. <laughs> that the tax was the furthest thing off their mind, on their mind for a long time. It's very true. <laughs> but uh, I think it's safe to say everybody's uh, used up most of those losses by now. And we are confronting what most people think is going to be a low return environment. So... Yes. So maybe it will come back on the agenda. Yes, and it is. It has slowly uh, come back, and the APRA data, which measures things like the tax position of superannuation funds in Australia, uh, tells us that maybe two two years ago, most funds had used up all their GFC tax losses and were starting. So they, their tax holiday had ended and they were starting to pay tax again on their investment portfolio. So it is very hard these days to find funds that still have um, accumulated tax tax losses. So they care again, but of course, what you really would have liked to have seen them do is, is move to put something in place before the tax holiday ended. But that conversation is just starting to liven up uh, now. Okay, so, so going back in time, you've You've had this idea that tax would matter. You've gone away and looked at it and found that it actually did matter. Uh, so you go and start to talk to institutional investors, superannuation funds. What's the response? The response is not no, but mostly it's not yes either. It's it's this interesting twilight where it didn't take long for you to present the evidence and for people to buy into the principle. So they, they would accept the principle of being after-tax focused and start to show some curiosity about the different ways that you could manage tax or embed it into your investment thinking. But the response was really, really for most funds, hasn't got past that sort of intellectual curiosity. So what we find is for a range of reasons that we might be able to move on to, um, funds are at the stage where they're, they're curious and they're engaged and they're looking at the research and they're asking me lots of questions, but very few are moving to put um, solutions in place or money behind these, these ideas. So, um, you know, part of, part of my role now is to, to help my firm sort of understand how long it will take for most of the funds to actually move from committing to the idea to actually putting solutions in place to manage tax effectively. Okay. Well, I definitely want to get back onto this point of why funds haven't been doing more, and we'll come back to that a little later. But before we address that, just for the benefit of our listeners, we're obviously talking about tax, tax savings, efficiency. It's always helpful to have an example. Uh, perhaps you can give us a, a quick example on the difference that thinking after tax can make as opposed to pre-tax for an, for an institutional investor such as a super fund. Sure. So to take 
a really specific example. Um, I'll use capital gains tax that applies to Australian equities, international equities, um, units in unit trusts or, or mutual funds, um, listed property trusts and various other portfolios. So what we do know is that superannuation funds have to pay tax, capital gains tax at 15% if they sell an asset um, that they've held for less than a year. But if you hold that asset for more than a year and then you sell it, you drop that tax rate from 15% to 10%. Now that's a very simple example, but to show you the sort of low-hanging fruit that could be out there, at the moment what we know is that when Australian equity managers um, um, look at trades, for the most part, they will ignore the fact that they might have held an asset for 362 days and that, that delaying that trade by a week um, would take 5% off the tax bill. So addressing that kind of behaviour and um, is integral to, to a, an after-tax investment focus. And I should specify, and hopefully you'll hear through this podcast, that um, when I talk about integrating tax into an investment approach, I am not talking about managing headline tax outcomes. So I'm not talking about maximising franking credits, minimising capital gains tax or anything else. I'm actually talking about maximising after-tax investment returns. And so that is about listing all of the considerations that go into a value accretive or hopefully value accretive trade. So, you know, pre-tax uh, market expectations and alpha um, insights, um, risk considerations, tax and transaction costs and all of the things that come together in an optimal way to deliver an after-tax outcome. So tax is a missing ingredient at the moment, but uh, you know, people without any kind of skill can manage to a headline tax outcome, but that doesn't necessarily deliver value to a super fund member. What we're really trying to do is maximise after-tax outcomes. So that the difference between managing a headline tax outcome and managing to after-tax outcomes, which I hope is is obvious to lis- to listeners, is is that. Uh, with the latter, you're actually trying you're trying to understand the trade-offs between a better tax outcome and a better pre-tax outcome, risk considerations and transaction costs. So um, sometimes it won't be about dropping that. In my example, dropping that CGT rate from fifteen percent to ten percent because other considerations will be more important. But uh, it is about getting tax into that in- ingredient list, that mix of considerations, so that you can um, optimise the trade overall for a better after-tax outcome. So if I understand you correctly, what you're essentially trying to help funds think about is creating a framework that integrates uh, the reasons why they purchase the investment, you know, the investment thesis and what they hope to earn out of it, considerations of risk, investment costs and taxes so that they make the best decision on balance? Absolutely. You probably said it more eloquently than me. I mean, oh, it's, it's easy when I'm <laughs> listening to you talk. I mean, I can... And I mean, it comes yeah. from this, um, this observation yeah. that we have a lot of smart people in this industry, but a lot of the clever investment ideas are conceived in a theoretical environment, and they're not often subject to this lens of uh, how it looks in the real world. We know that the real world is... 
uh, uncertain and hostile and there are all kinds of frictions that mean that how a, how a theoretical best ideas portfolio comes together in the real world is is a really important thing to understand because those things do look different in the real world. So um, minimising the difference between best ideas and a real world portfolio, in other words, managing implementation frictions is really at the heart of um, what we're trying to do and what I'm talking to the industry about. Okay, and we'll, we'll definitely come on to some of those real world considerations a little later on but first just want to circle back to the comments that you made about um, joining parametric your current firm earlier um, you told me a really interesting story about how you found each other and I think it's worth elaborating on because it kind of illustrates the level of where implementation considerations were a couple of years ago yes so yes. perhaps you could take us through the story. Yes. So uh, I was working for a, a large Queensland-based institutional investor uh, in 2009, and unbeknownst to me, this powerhouse US firm called Parametric had been looking at the Australian market from overseas and came across a really interesting article about this Queensland firm awarding its first after-tax focused mandate to um, a manager in the Australian market. And it was the first time that Parametric realised that super funds in Australia were subject to tax. And so the, 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 the investment problem for them was an after-tax problem. Now, Parametric at the time had uh, a couple of decades um, of history in the US managing to after-tax returns and implementation efficiency for mostly high net worths in the US who were subject to tax. Uh, institutions in the US and um, in most places around the world aren't subject to tax. Tax <laughs> is a bit of a, almost a religious topic in the US. There's, there seems to be two camps. There's the, the one camp that thinks they should pay more and the other camp that yeah. don't think they should pay any at all. But uh, Yes, but it is a, it is a, a retail market debate, right, where, where, uh, where they feel the impact of taxes on investment portfolios. And so with Parametric's realisation back in 2009 that Australian super funds were subject to tax, they made a decision to come down to Australia and, and have a think about whether their experience in managing to after-tax returns uh, in the US could be modified to actually help superannuation funds fix this problem. Um, so of course, um, as it happens, that I, I had my fingerprints o over that sort of Queensland-based deal that, that Parametric read about. And um, years later, so 2014, in fact, I ended up getting offered a role at Parametric and it has, has been a, a marriage made in heaven, really. <laughs> mm -hmm. oh, I'm glad you're both having fun. So in your role at Parametric, you've written uh, a bunch of great research papers, I think 17. Something like that. 17, yeah. okay. So 17 and counting, hopefully. No wonder I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of them had to deal with uh, a point that we started out talking about, which I said that I was going to come back to, which was this idea of the slow adoption rate of funds into looking at implementation and why it matters. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting that as you say, Parametric had to find out about after tax from a news article, the, mm -hmm. the one and only news article, 
um, in what you'd think would have been a much more developed um, priority for most funds given that they're taxed. Mm. So just on this point of blockages or issues uh, affecting the the focus on implementation, um, what do you think's behind that? It, it is good that you raise it because the, the most of the early papers I did particularly for parametric, were really more technical education pieces. And more and more I was beginning to realise that the, what was stopping funds, these blockages, weren't around, it wasn't sort of a lack of understanding. Uh, and of course, there's smart people that I was talking to. It was more cultural or it was more um, institutional. And that led me to research the topic of innovation and embracing new things or not embracing them in the corporate literature. And there's uh, there have been a lot of great studies about that over the years. And actually bring that together in some formal research for the super fund industry about uh, about why it's hard for them to pick up new ideas, to change the paradigms that um, govern their thinking, etc. And the piece that I... I researched and wrote was called status quo thinking and what I identified was a set of what I called status quo thinking traps five traps that I thought superannuation funds could be guilty of falling into that helped to explain uh, why there was a relatively slow take-up of this idea of being after-tax focused so I'll, I'll move through those sure. quite quickly um, the first is uh, a risk aversion uh, or a, even a blame culture and I do find in practice that funds are very highly regulated, uh, have a lot of governance and they feel public, public scrutiny and they, they, they should I think, you know, they are in this fairly privileged position of getting 9.5% of everyone's wages here um, every week. But it means that um, it means that it feels very brave of them to um, to to adopt something new, and it seems to be a lot more about making sure you don't make a mistake rather than moving forward with a new idea. So, and one of the examples there, which is based on real life conversations I've had with funds, is factor investing. So factor based investing is something that's been around for decades. Um, there's some great publicly available information that I recommend uh, written about the Norwegian Sovereign Fund. And some people know about that. They were very public in the way they went down that road and many other smart investors have followed. But when you talk to a lot of funds in Australia, as I did, about the idea of factor investing, they would say, which is the idea of using a real rules-based uh, approach to investing in equities that is non-market cap-weighted and harvesting certain sort of common factor risks or characteristics of particular stocks, like growth or value or momentum or size or something. Um, if you talk to funds about factor investing, um, as I have done, a lot of them will say, look, if I go to my investment committee and board and I recommend just a passive market cap approach, the market goes down, it's not my fault, it's markets. 
If I recommend um, uh, an, an active approach, a full active approach, asset consultants come in, choose a manager, the manager uh, underperforms. That's not my fault. We can fire the manager or maybe fire the asset consultant. But I really have to put my neck on the line to, to uh, suggest this new approach, a factor approach, even though it's got a lot going for it, a lot going for it, and ticks a lot of boxes. And so I'm not going to do it. And so that's one of many examples of why new ideas don't get up in in um, in the industry so that that's this this what I call the status quo thinking trap of uh, risk aversion or, or blame culture um, the second trap was what I call status quo roles responsibilities and resourcing and that's the idea that we can all talk the talk about being innovative and future focused, but if you actually look at uh, the day-to-day roles that people have, their BAU responsibilities, their KPIs. Quarterly reporting, <laughs> risk reporting. Yeah, it just fills up your day and then some. And in practice, there's no bandwidth to do, to do anything with new ideas, even if you have them. And so you just don't, you can't, you're not actually practically uh, resourcing firms to encourage people to move forward and empower them to move forward with new ideas. In fact, um, the head of innovation at McKinsey was quoted last year in the Australian press as saying he thinks that the biggest problem with innovation in most organisations is not a lack of ideas but a lack of resourcing, so a lack of a way to do something with a good idea in an organisation. The third status quo thinking trap is siloed thinking. We know that the value chain for superannuation in Australia is complex and it's got a lot of moving parts. And it seemed to me, again, uh, looking at the industry, that there's a lot of people that uh, have their parts of the value chain to to organise, to manage. Um, but there's not a lot of people that are really stepping back and looking at how that value chain can be reconfigured, what can be insourced, what can be outsourced, what can be unbundled, in fact, what can be bundled. And uh, the fewer people that you have in the industry doing that, the more you're missing opportunities to innovate throughout this uh, quite complicated value chain that we have in the industry. Two other things that I think this is the fourth and the fifth status quo thinking trap and these are quite topical. Uh, the fourth one is size. And I raised that in my research uh, pointedly because Australian, the Australian superannuation industry is now around $2.5 trillion in Australian terms. It's, it's huge. It's expected to be uh, bigger than the banking industry within the next decade. It's quite the juggernaut. And we talk a lot in the industry about the advantages of scale. Um, but one of the disadvantages is that it's much harder to be agile, to take on new ideas. What happens is that uh, processes and culture and mindsets and, and values are all uh, grown up and entrenched around uh, existing ways of thinking. And the other thing is that the, the, weight of, the weight of thinking is around the existing business. It's not around new possibilities and where your member base or the market might be going. It's all around managing what you've built up so far. Um, and part of that is around value protection, you know, protecting what you've built rather than 
um, trying to add to that by being future focused. Society is a real impediment to taking on new ideas and I wanted to really call that out for the industry but also I wanted to I wanted to encourage smaller funds to actually see the gift that they have in not being a monolith uh, and actually being uh, able potentially to take on some of these new ideas much more agilely and nimbly than the, the bigger funds. The last status quo thinking trap that's because I know we want to move on, um, that I identified in the research was this idea of groupthink. So some of that's around behavioural biases, um, but part of it was just this thing that you do live and feel here in Australian superannuation, and that is that funds are very peer-sensitive and they tend to like the safety of the pack. So they like to do things together. They don't like to be the first to do something new and I think that you can go to a lot of superannuation fund conferences and you can get a lot of um, you can get a lot of uh, entrenching or affirming the ideas that you have and not a lot of challenging of those ideas so um, you know I think I think all, all of those types of status quo thinking traps uh, we're important to show the industry generally that we're not, we don't seem to be very good at moving forward with any new ideas. And so some of the new ideas like tax and implementation efficiency in general, centralised portfolio management, which we'll come to, they're caught up in this um, broader challenge of how we innovate as an industry when it's just getting harder and harder and harder to do that. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with all of those points. I guess from my own experience, one of the things that I noticed working in a super fund, and I used to describe it to people, particularly fund managers, because uh, fund managers look at at stocks, for example, if they're an equity manager, they do the research, and if they like the stock, they buy it. And I describe that as working forwards, Mm -hmm. whereas in a super fund, you work backwards. That's how I used to explain (laughs) it to people. So you might identify an investment idea or a fund manager that you like, and that's just the beginning. That that should be the most important thing. You've found an investment that you think will make your members money. Mm But then you've got to see how that investment is rated with the consultant. That's and if right. it's not rated, you have to convince the consultant to rate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you obviously have to talk uh, to your team members. You have to convince your board that it's a good idea. You have to do due diligence. Mm-hmm. So you end up almost spending the next three to six or in some cases more months validating a conclusion that you made very early on. Yes. And in that time, often the world shifts as well. It does, yes. And so you're always working backwards. And I think in that kind of environment, it's very hard to be innovative. Um, on the point of size, which is an excellent one, and uh, you're right, smaller funds uh, really don't understand the gift that they've been given. And I think that's due to, and this isn't my idea, it's an idea I took from uh, Harvard Business School professor Hayden Christensen. Christensen yes. I know you like Hayden as well. Uh, <laughs> this idea of attributes and circumstances. So too many people in our industry look at attributes and size as an attribute and they compare themselves to other funds of a different size and they they say, well, such and such fund is doing this and this and this, we should be doing that too. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and they actually miss the fact that their circumstances are quite different and what that allows them to do is quite different. So mm -hmm. a classic example mm -hmm. uh, is infrastructure. So you see some very large funds have been very active in infrastructure for a long time and done really well out of it. And smaller funds look, look at the performance that's generated in people's portfolios and they say we should have more infrastructure. Yeah. They're looking at the attributes as in the allocation to infrastructure but they're ignoring the circumstances, the size. Yeah. So you know, if you're a large fund investing in infrastructure, more than likely you're investing directly. You're not paying fees to managers. Yeah, that's right. um, you're allocating large amounts. You possibly have priority on deals or part of consortiums that have priority on deals. You bought the assets maybe 10 or 20 years ago and you know toll roads, airports are not interchangeable. Uh, so there's all of these things. You've captured falling discount rates for the last 20 years. Valuations are a lot higher. Mm -hmm. So you can't just make an attribute to attribute comparison, you have to look at circumstances. Yes, very good point. And the circumstances that smaller funds have allow them to do other things. Uh, you know, I would argue that for larger funds, stock picking is becoming close to impossible. Um, maybe with factors, they can still get some juice out of equity markets or credit markets, but smaller funds don't have that problem. Mm. Um, and this is where they could do some, some really interesting things with active management. But they're never going to see that if they're comparing themselves with people that have very different circumstances. Yes, which ties into that um, is sort of that fascination with what's happening in your peer universe, which, yeah, I think holds certain funds back. Definitely, definitely. And it's interesting because there's, on that, that point of groupthink, uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about how diversity helps change groupthink. Mm -hmm. I, I had the privilege a couple of years ago of meeting uh, Michael Malbison and he's a, a really interesting investor and thought leader and we we're talking about this point of groupthink and diversity and he made the observation that for diversity to work you need three conditions. Mm -hmm. um, first of all the group has to be sufficiently diverse and that involves multiple measures of diversity, not just one. The second thing is there has to be a way to aggregate everybody's views. Mm -hmm. um, and board meetings typically are really bad ways to do that because typically one person will do all the talking and the rest will nod and agree. Yes, you need a good chair, but yes. So that that's the danger there. And then the third point is once you've aggregated the views, the people expressing those views have to put something on the line. See, the, the reason why markets are good at price discovery is because every person that buys and sells a share is putting capital on the line. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the reason why betting markets are good at predicting elections is because the people are risking their own money to express a view. So where you have group decisions made where people are not actually putting anything on the line, even if there is diversity and a good way of aggregating the views, you still don't necessarily get the benefits from it. And I thought that was a very That's interesting right. framework that you need those three things. You need yeah. diversity, a proper aggregation mechanism, and people have to have skin in the game, essentially. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with you at all. Okay. So uh, let's move on to a point that you made earlier, which was challenging some of these ideas that are out there that uh, 
that people have, and we know you've done that a lot in your research. So I'm going to throw some of these at you, <laughs> and we'll explore them and and see where the truth lies. So okay, I'm going to brace myself here. <laughs> the first one is we talk about passive investing a lot as being tax efficient because there's low turnover in the index. Mm -hmm. I think it normally ranges around 5% for mm -hmm. sort of global equities. Yeah. Is that true? Is it really tax efficient? It's actually one of my pet hates to hear that. And you won't be surprised to hear that I've published on this subject, formally and in, in op-eds. I think that the passive investment management community were very clever in seeing the rise of interest in rising interest in after-tax investing and jumping on that bandwagon and slapping this tax efficiency label on their their style of investment management the pa passive philosophy and simplicity is really seductive so when you're talking about something like tax people want to believe it's simple right? and I'd, I'd be the first to understand that um, and so to say, well, you just keep turnover low and your taxes are, you, you can tick your tax efficiency box. To say that, of course, it's, uh, is something that is going to be well received. The, the, issues, the issues with it are that, uh, so in, there's actually not a number of issues. So the big one is that um, the way to think about tax efficiency, if you really want to be very smart about it, is to not think about a preference to minimise turnover, but to acknowledge that you have asymmetric turnover preferences. So what you actually want is not just this blanket minimum turnover rule or, or attribute. You actually want turnover that minimises stocks on the gain side, which is where tax is crystallised, but actually maximises uh, turnover on the loss side. Because the tax shelter value of losses in a portfolio is not realised until you actually made the trade of those, make the trade of those loss stocks. And it, uh, you can decompose, as I've done um, a few times, you can decompose as a standard equity um, index, so Australian or um, international, and even in a really good year, you can find usually 30 or 40% of stocks that actually generated a loss. And then, of course, it's much higher if you talk about intra-year stocks that were showing a loss at a particular point in time. So what you want to do, but going back to qualifying all this with my original comment that you think about tax in this framework of after-tax returns, not as a as a, a headline outcome that you're seeking. Um, you you actually the problem with passive management is that you get no turnover on the loss side, and so while you you don't get CGT realised, um, and I'll come to another issue in a minute, um, you also don't get to crystallise any losses on um, in your portfolio, and so. Um, at the same time, you've got capital gains being generated in other parts of your portfolio and other asset classes, and none of the losses in your equity portfolio can shelter any of those gains elsewhere from tax simply because you haven't traded them. So a much smarter 
approach that focuses on after-tax returns to members is um, a genuine tax-managed approach that actually has, exploits that asymmetric turnover preference, preference that have, takes a passive style but actually has the ability to generate more losses on the loss side, so more, more trades on the loss side and less on the gain side. And when you actually do that, and this is our experience, you can actually improve after-tax returns to a superannuation fund member on a market cap passive portfolio by 25 or 30 basis points a year. So it's not marginal, it's actually quite powerful. And some of the other issues with passive investing is that if you access it in a, in a pooled fund, then if you're buying into a passive style, um, then you're actually buying into a huge um, accrued capital gain inside that fund and you have no control about when it's, it's going to be distributed. All it needs is for another unit holder to be um, moving out and large institutional investor and suddenly you've, um, you're getting hit with um, a disproportionate amount of capital gains all at once. Um, one, of, one of the even more fundamental issues with calling passive investing tax efficient is that you get no line of sight over after-tax outcomes. So, um, so how can you even purport to be after-tax focused um, if you're not even measuring performance on an after-tax benchmark, you don't have a uh, um, on a after-tax portfolio. You don't have, you're not benchmarking performance to an after-tax benchmark. You're not looking at things like uh, harvesting franking credits, off-market share buybacks, the CGT that could be crystallised on transition management. None of those things are, are catered for in your standard market cap passive approach and should be in a genuine after-tax focused approach. And that's where I think, uh, you know, passive falls short in, an, in a true after-tax sense. Okay, it's very interesting. I was interested in your comments about the, uh, the selling of losers and how that kind of turnover can actually be, be beneficial. So next idea that's out there that may or may not have some truth to it Superannuation funds should be segregating pension assets. Discuss. <laughs> yes. So at some point in time, I think, yes. Uh, it, uh, at the moment, there's a trade-off between the economies of scale that you get from pooling accumulation and pension assets, and we all get that. And that, that's been really the compelling argument for not segregating for... Uh, the history of compulsory superannuation to date, um, but at some point in time, the the argument for segregation, which is particularly the customization, uh, um, to, to actually manage it to the custom needs and preferences of pension uh, members, will outweigh the scale benefits of not segregating. And so, that's not just a size issue. It is. It requires an assessment of the needs of the pension members versus accumulation members, accumulation members, 
Um, and just for your fund, how important it is for you to um, to exactly or as, as as closely as possible meet the needs of those pension members in a in a segregated way. So uh, I I would say for the short term, the answer to your question is no. That that you have to have segregation of pension assets because it is a business case with pros and cons. But I think in the long term, it would be hard to conceive of a a fund. Um, not acknowledging in the end that pension members are sufficiently different that they need their own solution and those needs will outweigh the the economies of scale that come with with pooling. Um, I will, Do you have yeah. any suggestions on how funds can measure <laughs> or, or figure out what that tipping point is? Yeah, well, it's not an easy question to answer because it's quite specific to each fund. I have put a framework out there in an presentation, not a research paper. I think funds do want to reduce it to a question of size. So for example, I've been asked, oh, you know, once my pension assets reach 10 million, 10 billion, um, is that sort of, you know, once I re is that, that the trigger to segregate? And I think it's actually a question of fitting a framework to each, each fund. Um, one thing that I am observing is that um, if you want to, if you want to genuinely be after-tax focused, then that actually builds the case for segregation. So once you formally adopt that as a as a philosophy, um, you can start having a look at the how tax preferences differ between accumulation and pension members, and how you would run portfolios differently because of that. And so you can quantify things like. The, the value of franking credits and off-market share buybacks to pension members versus accumulation members, the, uh, the impact of withholding tax leakage, which is a permanent cost to pension members and uh, just a, a, a fairly minor timing difference to accumulation members. You can even have a look at things like the fact that in the pension environment when you're tax exempt, there's no tax hurdle that you have to um, have to meet in order to then create value with alpha. Like if alpha's there, you have to cover the transaction costs, but um, there's a lower hurdle. So all other things equal, you should be uh, more confident in pursuing an alpha program in, in, in a pension environment than in an accumulation environment. Which is ironic because most people think about de-risking in pensions. They do. Uh, actually, I released a paper yesterday on defensive equities as a, um, how you might use that in a, in a SIPA or post-retirement solution. And so uh, I have been on record publicly saying um, we need a lot more innovation in the retirement space. So I'm not alone in saying that. And I think one of the answers is to be a bit cleverer in how we give... Uh, members' growth exposure in those post-retirement years. I, I couldn't agree more. One of the things that I've uh, been thinking about for a while is that the, the typical pension portfolio starts to allocate more towards fixed income, which mm. in the current environment looks quite challenged. We've got a low return environment, members living longer, mm. and that's probably going to continue. That argues in favour of higher allocations to growth assets. Yeah. As we've just said, the tax, uh, the zero tax regime allows you to have a higher turnover. 
So why aren't more people exploring things such as trend following on mm. their equity allocations? I know people often think of it as market timing and that's got a bad reputation, but the idea of allowing older members to have more money in growth assets, mm. but to reduce that exposure when, when markets get volatile or sell off, to me makes sense, particularly if you're not getting slugged with extra tax. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think in some ways we should be very disappointed with ourselves as an industry because we, we just haven't got to it. We just haven't really brought our best retirement thinking at all, so our best portfolio design thinking to the retirement space. And what's interesting for me is that it's hard to predict the future, but we actually could predict it in this respect. We could see the way that the member demographics were going years ago. So, um, I mean, I've been in this industry for 25 years and certainly for the last 10 we've been talking about coming to this time where suddenly we're seeing um, that we're paying out 40, 50, 60, it's, I think it's heading up towards 70% now of our cash inflows back as cash outflows as either a lump sum or an income um, stream. And so we actually could see the future coming and we could have planned for it and preempted it. But there just has been, I think, again, too much focus on what we've built so far and not much forward planning about what the future holds. And sort of back to our, not to belabor the point, but sort of back to our comments before about status quo, thinking and lack of innovation. Um, if you get enough funds that are, are caught up in stasis, then no one, everyone's feeling safe there and no one's feeling a sense of urgency or reward in sticking their necks out and, and, and being the first or the second or the pioneer in the retirement space. Uh, I know that Jeremy Cooper, the architect of um, the Stronger Super Reforms that came out of the Cooper Review and Report, was quoted in the Financial Review early this year in saying that really the, the, only, the only kind of innovation that he's seen in the retirement space from super is just around flexibility and liquidity and it's not at all been about how we how we make sure we deliver an income stream and deal with longevity risk and sequencing risk how we actually think about downside protection um, jump risk tariffs so so uh, even he called out and he's not I'm not saying that he represents a superannuation fund but he certainly knows a lot about the industry even he called out that we um, are well behind the eight ball with this mm -hmm. so it sounds like we've all got a lot of work to do so we'll, we'll move on to our next is there truth in this statement question <laughs> and that is ETFs. So we hear a lot, particularly from uh, the US, about the tax efficiency of ETFs and mm -hmm. being better than mutual funds. And particularly in the US, there's uh, obviously the tax laws are different to Australia. Um, you can do a lot of tax loss selling with ETFs. Yeah. And one of the things that I've noticed looking at the Australian market relative to the US market is there seems to be much more institutional uptake of ETFs in the US compared to here. Mm -hmm. They seem to be more of a retail instrument in Australia. Yeah. And I wonder if that's because of the differences in tax between the two countries. No, it's not really. I think that the, the uptake in ETFs 
in the US compared to Australia reflects a few different things. It reflects the fact that they've been around for longer and there've been more options available. And I think that financial advice has got their heads around them, you know, much sooner in the US and made it happen. They've been cheaper in the US and there's been a lot more liquidity. And I know there are market um, uh, makers here, but I just think that it's been a lot easier to get into the ETF market in the US. And in Australia, if you think about institutions, they've been able to get um, really low low fee options as you know, a direct uh, mandate or a separate account structure. So um, I think that I, I can, I, I'm not surprised at all to see that it's retail demand that's really driving the ETFs here versus the, the US. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the tax differences, we, we, do, we do have to be careful in reading some of the US literature about how tax efficient ETFs are and just assuming that applies to an Australian ETF vehicle. So um, the first thing I would say is that, um, as you mentioned, you can you can legally loss harvest in the US, and so that is you know ETFs are an instrument that are used to do that in a legal way in the US, um, which is one way that you can help with tax efficiency. You cannot do that; it's not legal in Australia. So. <laughs> um, so, so that's one way that reading the US literature on ETFs is misleading. The other is that in the US, you can pass assets out of a trust structure, and an ETF is a trust structure, and that's not a capital gains tax event, but that's not true in Australia. We have found ways to kind of manage that in Australia, but it's just another way that if you're not careful, you're attributing tax, uh, favourable tax attributes to an ETF um, from an Australian perspective that aren't, aren't actually there. That said, uh, the way I've always thought of it is that from an Australian perspective, the least efficient tax structure is an unlisted pooled fund vehicle. And again, there are other benefits of that, but tax is not one of them. Um, you get some more uh, tax efficiency with a listed um, fund vehicle like an ETF so that's that helps you a little bit relative to an unlisted product but then there's a sort of a huge leap forward in tax efficiency as well as various other benefits by actually breaking out of that um, trust structure as a whole and moving to a separate account structure. And one of the things that um, the retail market um, needs to move to here is saying okay we've got what we call SMAs or separate accounts um, they need to see that that's not the end game in terms of tax efficiency for them, that there's actually a further step that they can go, which is called an IMA, where they have, the, the, they have tax efficiency in the structure, but they can actually get tax efficiency in the strategy. So embedding the tax thinking in the portfolio uh, management, not just wrapping sort of tax naive portfolio management in an SMA structure. Okay, very good. So we'll move on to... <coughs> centralized portfolio management so this is i guess part of that broader implementation uh, question that we were talking about earlier now i know some funds uh, in australia use it it 
I guess does also have implications for tax as well because you're you're kind of aggregating the positions across managers. Tell us why centralized portfolio management may or may not make sense for an institutional investor. Uh, okay. Perhaps first explain what it is for our <laughs> listeners. Okay. I'm presuming that you know what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. So <laughs> We, we're very fond of abbreviations and acronyms in, in Australia, so we, we call it CPM. But centralised portfolio management is something that's really embedded in the landscape in the US, but is reasonably new here. We now have almost a six-year track record up in Australia, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's um, still relatively new, especially when we just talk about how slow um, funds are to, to take up new ideas. So... Um, CPM is this holistic implementation platform that is designed to to manage the implementation frictions in a multi-manager equity portfolio. So the way that a traditional multi-manager equity portfolio is structured is that you know a fund will choose five or ten or more sometimes managers, but let's say it's five different managers and each will manage a sleeve of their equity portfolio in isolation. And that so each of those managers has has really two tasks. It's sort of an IP task to come up with their best ideas and, and uh, insights and then to implement their, that portfolio. And so implementation is done um, at the manager sleeve level and it's not coordinated and there's no whole of portfolio view. So with centralised portfolio management or, C, or CPM, the idea is that we say, look, most of the value from these managers is actually in the IP piece, their investment ideas, they're, they're really artisan piece. And actually most of the fi- frictions that can be cleaned up are in the implementation piece that can be coordinated by a centralised implementation manager, a CPM manager. And one of the things from a a tax perspective that is beautiful about the idea of CPM is that CGT can't actually be managed effectively at the individual manager sleeve level. And there is a bit of a a move by Australian super funds to get their individual managers to be after-tax focused and consider tax. The problem is that, and I've, I've researched and published on this, the problem is that the optimal tax decision in in one manager's portfolio depends what's happening in other managers' portfolios, but of course they don't have line of sight into oh, other managers' they're portfolios. They're all competitors. <laughs> That's right, and you don't want them to have that. You, yeah. know, you want this sort of manager diversity and independent thinking. And so um, the way you solve that problem is that you give the implementation manager who um, has after-tax skills and after-tax mandate, you give them suddenly a line of sight over the whole of the portfolio. So the CPM manager's role is to get the best ideas of these uh, active managers, so like a notional trade list every day if they want, however often the manager wants to give it to them. So it feels like from the manager's perspective that they're handing off a set of uh, notional trades um, to a trading desk, but they're actually handing it off to the CPM manager. The CPM manager is combining those best ideas represented by those notional trades um, into one aggregate 
proposed trade, but then having a look at that trade through the lens of tax efficiency and other implementation, um, uh, potential implementation frictions like um, brokerage and FX commissions, um, liquidity, even just natural crossing opportunities inside a, a fund that happen when one manager is wanting to buy BHP and the other manager is selling, for example. So um, all of those implementation frictions are cleaned up by the CPM manager who then implements one set of whole portfolio trades e each day. And so the other thing that you get, because you can quantify a lot of these benefits, but the other thing you get is um, a whole lot of qualitative benefits because if you think about CPM, you've now got all of your equities in one place. So in a traditional multi-manager structure, it's like a jigsaw, every manager's got a piece of it. If you want to do risk analysis or ESG analysis or um, you want to put on a factor tilt or you want to um, segregate you know, accumulation from pension assets, you're dealing with that, that uh, idea or that opportunity manager by manager. Um, in this case, you're just having one conversation with the CPM manager, whose job is to, they've got the best ideas of, the, of your selected manager, and then over the top of that one portfolio, you can do things like, what are your risks look like? How could they look if you wanted to change the portfolio? You can do that modeling very easily. You wanna do some sort of ESG um, screen or, or um, adjustment easily done, centralising proxy voting. Um, you want to create separate accumulation and pension portfolios. Again, you, you, you just take those, those same best ideas from that same set of managers who each still have one mandate and you just create two separate CPM portfolios, one accumulation and one pension. So there's a whole lot of qualitative benefits as well. So you know, and all of this is to say that there's quite obviously a reason that CPM's generated a lot of discussion in Australia, but that discussion, as we mentioned um, early in the podcast, hasn't to date um, led to a lot of take-up or action, apart from um, a very a small number of very forward-thinking funds. Okay, well, that's very interesting, and hearing you talk has reminded me of one observation and two questions. So I'll start with the observation, <laughs> and that is that uh, this, to me, makes a lot of sense, particularly in Australian shares, because um, when you're running a multi-manager portfolio in Australian shares, and I, I spent a lot of time modelling this um, many, many years ago at uh, a fund where I worked, and that was once you have more than three or four managers in a portfolio, the redundancy mm. Uh, that is the the netting of trades between one manager, one manager being overweight a stock or underweight a stock or the same stock or even worse, one buying and one selling the same mm. stock, actually transacting. Mm. Uh, with three managers, it was very hard to get that redundancy to be less than 40% of the yes, portfolio. And once you, you add a, a fourth or a fifth manager, it quickly approaches 50 or 60% of the portfolio. And... I've also tested this that a typical five or six manager portfolio, the redundancy gets so high, the portfolio is owning maybe 400 stocks, but it's literally less than 20 that are driving all the returns and the risk because everything else is netting. Yeah. Um, and it just seems grossly inefficient, not just from, from tax perspective, but even portfolio construction perspective. So that's, that's the observation. Now the questions. 
if I was a fund manager, this doesn't sound like a very good deal for me <laughs> um, because I'm, I'm, I'm giving away essentially half my job. And I just wonder whether there's a bit of an adverse selection effect in that if I'm a really great high-performing fund manager who's got lots of clients and you know, shooting the lights out and somebody says to me, hey, we want to take your ideas and we want to trade them, that I'll say, well, no thanks, you know, have your cash back, here's the mandate. And that you'll only be left with essentially the managers that are desperate for the business and are happy to give away their IP. So mm-hmm. is there an adverse selection uh, risk here? There is an adverse selection risk, but let me let me turn it on its head and um, ask it a different way, which means it's actually the opposite of adverse selection. I don't know what the opposite of adverse selection is, actually. It's too late to figure that out in the afternoon. <laughs> That's right. If you yeah. don't know, I certainly don't. Um, and this is the way that I'm discussing it with yeah. super funds at the moment, because um, we can, we do some we do some analytics based on um, the actual trade history of a super fund, so we can show them very conservatively what kind of um, implementation frictions can be cleaned up and value added through CPM. So if you take that to your managers and say, here's the value I want to claw back, and by the way, you're going to get paid the same thing that we're paying you now to do half the work, and by the way, I wouldn't mind that deal myself, but if you say that to the managers and you say, well, here's the value that we can add and we're pretty excited about that, that's a good thing to us. The way to think about it, or one way you could think about it is the managers who say yes are the ones that really do have your members' interests at heart and are true partners to you. So the ones who say no, there are some legitimate reasons to say no, but the ones that say no and don't really have a good reason to to give you for that are asking you to walk away from those um, implementation uh, benefits and um, in that sense, maybe they're not the right partner for you. If they're more interested in um, keeping their world the same, keeping really close connections with their brokers who pay for their Bloomberg terminals, you know, burying transaction costs inside of net returns so that they can't be disclosed. Or if they, if they, if what's really motivating them is something that's actually costing your members money then perhaps that's perhaps there's an agency risk that this CPM discussion is calling out for you to address. Now, I, I might sound a bit high mighty and idealist um, I, I, when I say that, and uh, I, don't, I don't mean to because I think that investment managers are very smart and they're really key investment, they're key partners to superannuation funds. And so I would never want the conversation between super funds and investment managers to be anything other than respectful, but it does have to be honest. And uh, you know, super funds, super funds should have the courage of their convictions. And if they really believe in an idea like CPM or something else, whatever it is, um, and they're seeing a manager in front of them that purports to be a partner that's aligned with them but is not allowing them to move forward with this opportunity, I think that the fund is entitled to ask questions about whether that's the right partner for them. Okay. That's, uh, I think that's a good answer. What about if you're a, say you're a, a, a small cap or even a micro cap manager and you have very small capacity for the opportunities that you're looking at, mm-hmm. and you're worried now that um, 
either the centralized manager is going to distort prices, I guess, by, yeah. by trading um, yep. b- through their trading. Does CPM still work in that case or what can be done to make it work for the client and the manager? Because the manager may also have other clients that are not part of the CPM program and obviously they have to do the right thing by them too. Yes. Yeah, so that's another excellent question. So a couple of ways to answer that. The first is that you need to think of uh, us as an implementation specialist so we have all the skills that any kind of passive manager would have. So we are... really across um, managing explicit and implicit trading costs. We understand, um, and I've published research on the things that actually push up implicit and explicit trading costs and the things you need to avoid and how you how you adopt particular trading techniques in particular markets where, for example, liquidity is an issue. Um, And so, so one way to answer that question is to say is to just is that we would just assure managers and funds and we'd show them their history of uh, our history of working trades into those markets in a way that we're not moving prices and we and and we're not um, feeling like a competitor that's uh, competing with the the manager who's working other trades in the market. Um, and we always do when we when we talk to managers prior to bringing them into the CPM program. We always do talk to them about their pro trading style and our trading style, and they can talk directly to our traders. Um, on that point, before I move on to the second sort of answer to the question, on that point, we do a lot of TCA's transaction cost analyses. We benchmark our execution outcomes to uh, independent. ITG data and actually all of the managers can see um, our, our, out, our trading outcomes as well, execution prices and are encouraged to raise any misgivings they have with us and actually with their superannuation fund clients. So we're really an open book and want to be held accountable by, um, by the managers themselves. So most of the time you can get managers across the line by just really talking them through your trading style versus theirs and making sure there isn't an issue. The second part of the answer is to say, and this has happened very occasionally, um, that sometimes we just talk to a manager and we realise that it's not a good idea for them to hand off the implementation to us. Um, really the way we would describe that kind of style that's incompatible with CPM is a style where um, a significant part of the manager's alpha proposition comes from the way they trade. Um, it's not just about claiming that we have skill in trading because we have skill in trading. It's not about that. It's more saying that they're quite opportunistic in the way they trade and and you just can see that um, that the, the, the alpha proposition is far less compelling if they're not doing doing the trading. Now that's, a, um, you know, if you get that outcome where you've had an open honest discussion with the managers and you say, okay, we get that, we get that trading is really integral to your alpha proposition, you should sit outside. Everyone should be happy with that outcome because it's been a full and frank discussion. We're all, um, we're all coming to a decision that seems best for everyone involved. Um, the, the ugly truth at the moment in these early years of CPM in Australia is that 
we get we've had a few quite a few managers that have claimed that they're in that category but there's no evidence of it at all so um, it's not consistent with the way that they describe their um, their alpha proposition their style it's a complete surprise to the asset consultant when you mention it to them not that asset consultants want to get involved um, and it, it, there's just no evidence sometimes they'll they'll um, give you sort of a history of um, their portfolio and their trades to, so that we can do some analysis and we, we will go back to them and the super fund with the results and that we just can't find any evidence that that us doing the trading through a CPM program rather than them doing it will make any difference at all um, and yet they'll still sort of claim that that's the case so we think that there's something else going on but in that when that happens it's not our job to really create uh, bad blood between a super fund and the investment manager but I, I would personally really like to see the super funds uh, call the manager out on that or say look you really do owe us an explanation that is more than you just need to trust us we need to keep the trading because um, uh, as I said before if the manager is allowed to just assert that, then they're really asking the fund to just walk away from all the benefits that are proven with, with CPM, which um, I, I don't think is a good outcome. One way to, to solve um, that problem when it comes up is um, for the asset consultant to actually get involved. Uh, you know, they're very close do, to the manager. Do they want to do that? Well, uh, unfortunately, no. And. Uh, but you know, stepping back, they are really perfectly placed to to get involved. They have a good relationship with the manager and the super fund client. They have a very good understanding of the manager's strategy. Um, if you ask them to, they'll do the work on CPM. They tend to be hands off. They're not against it. They just don't see it as, as ha their role as having a view, which is a shame. Um, but one way to solve this this problem of you know, are managers compatible, are they not, is um, through a third party like um, an asset consultant to to do something very simply to, to answer that, that question. It doesn't come up uh, a lot, but where it does come up and you can see that there's something else going on and it's not necessarily a truthful conversation, that's really hard to deal with. Okay. So typically when a manager's uh, part of a CPM program, uh, say they have non-CPM clients and CPM clients. Mm. Is there a lag between the CPM portfolio and the portfolio that they're responsible for in trading? Or how does that work? Because I know some mm. of them might be very sensitive of their IP. They might be worried that you're trading a best ideas portfolio off the back of this. And So yeah. how do you manage those other issues? Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, to just quickly put to bed, um, so the idea of a best ideas portfolio or something that maybe leverages up their collective insights or using those um, ideas in a different way to what they understand, which is, as I described, you know, just mm. putting it together in an aggregate portfolio, that would never happen because we... You, you have to be honest with the manager about that. And if you're using their ideas differently, there has to be a discussion about whether they're comfortable with that, um, how they view their capacity in relation to that, whether there's a fee related to that. So that can be put to bed uh, quite quite quickly. And um, yeah, so that's sort of easy to deal with. 
there are, back to your other question, there are lots of misconceptions about CPM, including lagging. So CPM's sometimes confused with this um, old idea called emulation. It's been around for a, lot, a while. It looks, it looks like emulation, but it's but but it's a much more evolved version that is really built from the ground up to be after tax focused and focusing on broader implementation efficiency. So emulation was that product that built in a lag of up to two weeks. And the idea there was that you would, as, a, as, as an emulation manager, you would sort of sit on the manager's best ideas for up to two weeks, and then you get huge crossing or netting opportunities. And then you went to market and you could claim huge transaction cost savings because of that crossing. And you could slap a tax efficiency banner on it because you reduced turnover. And in, in, we talked earlier about uh, the the fallacy in just equating low turnover as as, as tax efficiency. Um, but that's what the emulation managers did. So lagging was really fundamental to that proposition. The big defect, um, and everyone listening is probably way ahead of what I'm about to say anyway, but the big defect is that that you, you just introduced into the process this sort of unknowable risk around alpha and alpha signal decay by sitting on a manager's ideas for, for, for two weeks. And so you had this sort of random... Um, impact on pre-tax performance because you were just sitting on these best ideas. That's not something that we've ever done at Parametric and we don't believe in it. We actually believe the opposite, which is that a manager alpha is precious, it's hard won, it's highly valuable. And so our idea is to get our, our interpretation of that idea post sort of aggregation optimization, get it to market as soon as possible. What that means in practice is for um, an Australian equity manager, they've got up to um, midnight on the f on 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 the day that they um, conceive of a, a set of trades that they want to do, to give that to us in our um, manager portal, which again feels like handing off the trade list to a trading desk. Overnight, our Australian time, our Seattle office is doing all of the analysis and optimizing, and we're going to market at or near the open, typically the following morning. So in practice that creates a half day lag. Um, that lag is not because we want to lag it at all, that's just uh, what's required to do the optimising. So um, yeah, so it's really important to correct people's um, perceptions that this is about lagging, it's actually about preserving as much as possible the manager's um, best ideas and the alpha that's coming from that, but reduce the implementation frictions in the way that that is realised in a real-world CPM portfolio. Okay, that's that's very interesting that you bring that out. So one final question. Uh, let's assume that I'm working in a truly innovative and forward-thinking superannuation fund. Don't laugh. Um, <laughs> And I want to improve implementation at the fund. What are three, uh, three of the most important, impactful things that I should be thinking about now in order to improve implementation? Okay, three things. Okay, so the first thing would be back to the cultural issues that I mentioned as part of my status quo thinking um, 
paper to have a really honest discussion about whether you have a culture um, and a process and a governance structure that allows allows people in the organisation to bring forward ideas and doesn't make them afraid to even fail or sound crazy. So sort of a cultural question would be the first thing that I would I would suggest. The second thing would be to not be transfixed by this drive to lower fees. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, maybe you didn't think I was going there. But to really embrace where APRA is going with all this and making it about um, outcome, net member outcomes because new ideas, new way of doing do, ways of doing things, new types of expertise can come with a cost and um, it's, it's really clear to me that if a small cost generates sort of multiple rewards in terms of better member returns, then it's, it's, it should be an easy decision to make. But the more the fund goes down the road of making decisions that just, is just driving down lower headline fees without thinking about whether that fee is worth it or whether that generates value for members, the more that's going to let so going to make them rule out any kinds of new ideas or innovation with any kind of cost attached. So that would be the second thing. And the third thing um, would be to have to have partners that uh, understand that uh, they, if they're truly partners, then they've got to be part of this uh, innovation journey as well. Because super funds, super funds of the future are those that are going to be very assiduous in the way that they choose their long-term partners. And it's not going to be transactional so much going forward. I think there's going to be fewer partners that super funds have, but really deep long-term partners. And so you've got to, as a super fund, you've got to choose a partner that is willing to evolve with you and be on this innovation journey. There's no industry in the world, I don't think, perhaps I'm being naive, but there's really no industry in the world that has the luxury of insulating themselves from this world of disruption and change uh, and innovation. So the super fund's task is not to think they can insulate themselves but to sort of see the opportunities in change and to be really clever and judicious about which changes will actually move them forward and move a clo- move them um, closer towards you know better delivering on their member outcomes for the long term and their partners have to sort of see that vision and be willing to move um, move alongside the super fund to to realize it well, Raywin, thank you very much for coming in and talking about implementation and tax. Hopefully we've kept it interesting, but it's certainly <laughs> been a pleasure for me to talk to you this afternoon. And it's a pleasure being here. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you for listening to the i3 Insights podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. Thank you. Thank you.